you know, I think we often can discount even our own by saying, oh, we're not quite as nice as the facility up the hill or uh, things like that. So, and, and, and also realizing that um, you are providing a service. It, it, it sounded weird to me at first, like, cause I'd never had a storage unit. Like, well, why would they, why would someone pay this much amount? What's going on guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, we're talking with Zach Quick about making the transition from multifamily investing to self-storage. That is exactly what he did. He was a successful multifamily residential investor and made the shift to self-storage a few years ago, well before the pandemic. He's been very successful as a self-storage investor. So today we're learning about making that shift, where the opportunity is, lessons learned along the way as a self-storage investor, mistakes to avoid, where he's finding deals today, how he's finding uh, self-storage deals, a little different than you might expect. You know, there's 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 a little more work to be, be put into it than uh, you may expect. So you're gonna learn about all of that today. Self-storage is a great asset class to invest in, but like anything else, you need to know what you're doing and you're gonna learn a lot about what to do today with Zach Quick. Big fan of self-storage and I love talking about it on the show. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you're enjoying the show and you haven't done so yet, please take a moment, leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts, five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem because you know they see that you're engaging with the content. And I'm always honest with you guys, that helps me feel good because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I have some self-storage investment uh, right now as we record this. And I want even more. It's a great business that you know, folks are just kind of finding out about now and not a lot of folks want to do. There's a lot of demand for it in many areas, and I do not think that will change. And Zach is going to teach us all about his self-storage investing business today. So without any further ado, here we go with Zach Quick. Zach, thank you for joining us today. Taylor, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to talk with you, and uh, we're going to talk about shifting from multifamily to self-storage. Certainly, uh, you know something we're we're seeing quite a bit of for a lot of very good reasons. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about what you do in your background, and then we'll dive into it? Sure. Uh, my name is Zach Quick. I've been uh, investing in in real estate for probably eight nine years now. I've uh, been full time self-storage for about three and a half four. Um, we my wife and I built up a kind of a small residential uh, multifamily portfolio and then uh, kind of had a quote unquote light bulb moment and uh, flipped the switch. And uh, we've since owned no residential and now have uh, currently about eight storage facilities, uh, almost half a million square feet in Missouri and Arkansas. So awesome. That's great. And, you know, you kind of, you were really before the, the curve of, you know, we've seen a lot during the pandemic of folks shifting from multifamily to self-storage. Um, what are your thoughts about that since you, you know, you kind of beat everybody else to the punch, you know, you got moving on it. <laughs> well, I wish I started earlier than I did, uh, frankly, <laughs> just because um, you hear stories about, you know, what prices were 
seven, eight years ago. And I, that's much the same as multifamily too, really. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, look, I think it's a great business. Um, I think you have um, a lot of the, um, I don't know, less political pressures and, 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 sure. and things that, uh, that multifamily or residential may have. My biggest concern with so many people coming in is that, I don't know, that they think it's completely uh, like that it can't be wounded in any way, shape or form, that it's like a perfect investment in all shapes and sizes. And uh, storage is much different in that storage's biggest enemy is storage. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, very, it's very easy to overbuild storage and become oversaturated. And it's really, really hard to do that with residential. Uh, frankly, it seems like we have a shortage of residential everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are pockets of storage where uh, we have oversupply and then other pockets where it's undersupply. So it's just, it's just different, but uh, yeah. So how do you uh, in your business go about determining whether an area is oversupplied and undersupplied? Yeah. Um, it's art and science. So um <laughs> A lot of it, frankly, comes down to like doing your research on your closest competitors. I am not a ground up developer. Um, we've done some expansions before on on land that was with um, an existing property, but but generally speaking, you know, you, you've got historical financials, you've got historical occupancy on a set property that you're looking at. But then, just as important is is looking at you know your competitors and future competitors within a three or five mile radius um, and being honest about how well they're managing, uh, how well they're not managing maybe. Um, and then also like, you know, if, if you're raising rates up to this point or are they already there, you know, how is that going to do with occupancy? So a, a ton of it is just figuring out truly being with those competitors and figuring out how well they're doing. And then, cause if everyone's managing well and everyone's 80, 85% full, then, that market's probably at saturation. Um, but if everyone's managing well and they're turning away people left and right, uh, then then there's probably room for more. Mm, okay. Now, one of the things I, I feel like we hear about a lot is the primary and secondary markets tend to be more overbuilt than, say, more rural areas, you know, give or take, uh, in a general sense. Is that your experience or, you know, where are you looking and generally finding overbuilt versus underbuilt in terms of? Yeah, I, I, generally speaking, some of the quote unquote, like sexier markets um, <laughs> can can be overbuilt a little bit more. And some of that's a little bit more because uh, there are either developers and or REITs or regional operators that kind of want to like check a box for a specific city. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so even like where I'm at in Bentonville, um, which is a fast growing area, um, a lot of money here. So there is, um, there's certain stretch within Bentonville where it's uh, new property, new property, new property, but yet there are other pockets of Bentonville that I would say could probably support more. So it really is a three mile radius business. And so, but, but generally speaking, I would say that that you're probably right and that kind of the faster growing, you know, larger metros tend to be a little, little bit more susceptible. But um, on the flip side, some of those don't have a ton of extra land to, to have those issues. So, uh, so it really kind of depends. I mean, we have some in, I have one in Kansas City, Missouri, that's, um, you know, a very established uh, population. It's dense populated. Um, but um, but it's actually by a lot of the like national metrics, it's an undersupplied two or three mile radius. So, um, so it really just, 
I hate to use that term, but it really just depends, uh, <laughs> frankly. So that's fair. It's all it's always case by case. And sure. I think one of the things we hear most about finding the opportunity in self-storage is, hey, there are all these properties that are owned by mom and pops that are really retired, they're self-managing, they're doing all these things. And we can bring these new technology tools, things like that to improve operations. Has that been your experience? Is that part of your business model? What are your thoughts about that bringing yep. into the 21st yep. century? Yeah, that's, that's. I mean, that's the kind of the bread and butter of the value add strategy, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, uh, not to be too simplistic, but a lot of it comes down to like uh, simplifying and updating like the customer experience. If they can't rent online when they're sitting in their living room at night, uh, <laughs> then you're then you're missing out on sales, uh, frankly. And the guy down the street will probably get that because there's a certain segment of the population that if they can click and do it, that would, they would much rather do that than pick up the phone. And then secondly, is just a pricing strategy. Like there are a lot of owners that would rather be 100% full at, at under market rates, frankly, because it's less work. And then off, oftentimes too, uh, you know, they know all their tenants. They don't, they don't want to rock the boat. Um, and to be fair too, like it may be paid off for them and what, what's an extra 10% in revenue going to do to their life that, yeah. you know, they, they don't care. Um, but um, you know, if you're running it like a true business, um, how, how good of a merchant are you if everyone's coming in and willing to give you more money than an existing customer and you have zero product to sell them? So, uh, so trying to price it optimally and then, yeah, making sure that you, um, you know, are, are able to meet customers how they want to be met, whether that's over the phone, whether that's, uh, whether that's online. So, but yes, you, you kind of hit on a lot of those strategies and just making sure you're priced optimally. Mm, okay. Now, uh, one of the big questions, right, is where are folks finding deals these days? There are you know, websites online, there are brokers, there are folks going direct to seller. In your business, what is your strategy? I know we're asking for the secret sauce there, but who's going to actually go out and do it? You're going out and do <laughs> sure, it. Sure, sure. So uh, in the last, call it three and a half years, um, we've, we've bought probably 12 um, and, and every single one of them has been off market direct to owner. Mm. Um, and so I, I've yet to buy a listed deal. I've listed a deal that I've sold, but, um, and, and I'm not here to say that I'll never buy a listed deal, but uh, frankly, if you're a direct to owner, if you can kind of be the only person in the room or the first call when they decide to make that uh, decision, it just, it just makes everything a lot easier. And, um, and sure there are, there may be some discounts to that, but also, um, I just think it, it's an easier process often for a seller. They might prefer that they may not want their manager to know until, you know, it's almost a done deal. Uh, they may not want everyone in town to know like, Hey, I saw your price. You were listed it for X amount. Like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know those storages were so expensive. Good, <laughs> good, good for you kind of deal. So, uh, so Generally speaking, I try, uh, you know, whether it's direct letters, cold calls, um, you know, kind of storage networking type events. Um, if you can get direct to owner, uh, you should do it. Mm. So how are you handling um, things like like follow up? Right. Because it's rare that you're going to get a phone call from a guy and he's going to, you know, hey, Zach, you know, I want to sell my property for an extremely reasonable price right now. Right. Sure. It takes follow up. Sure. How do you handle all that? Uh, yeah. So I've got. Uh, it's basically a, a 
plain old Excel spreadsheet that I've been working on for the last four years that um, basically logging the last time I've had any kind of interaction with them, last time I've had any kind of mail that I've sent them. Um, and then, you know, just trying to touch base two, three times a year. Uh, and, and oftentimes that's enough. They might just say, hey, I have zero interest, um, but I'll still call just to say, hey, you know, maybe maybe you hear about something and you're not interested and I might be, maybe you can help somebody else out. Um, or, you know, life changes pretty fast. Um, you know, you could be not interested whatsoever. And then a month later, like you're ready to get it off your hands. So, so really just trying to keep track of the touch points and, and, and being consistent is really anything with sales or any, anything, uh, like that is just being consistent. So, um, what are you finding in a general sense, uh, like a number of follow-ups that you need to do, or, you know, any kind of standard practices that, that end up resulting in a closed deal? Is it, you know, say five touch points or all kind of all over the map? Yeah. Um, yeah, generally speaking, I would say at least that I had one in April that we bought that I spoke to the owner probably, quarterly for about two and a half years. Um, and then I just got a random call, um, and said, Hey, I think we're ready. Um, so, uh, but, but, but I've been lucky enough to say that I've sent one letter and one phone call and, and that worked too. (laughs) They definitely don't all go that way. Um, but you know, it never happens if you don't try either. So, um, so I would say minimum five if, uh, but, it's a, it's a long game or you need to treat it as such because a lot of owners are getting a lot of mail. Um, but a lot of that mail is just a one-off random, you know, uh, Hey, I'm doing this and not like literally the same letter over and over two or three, <laughs> two or three times a year. So. Okay. Okay. So uh, you've been in the the storage world for you know years here. You've got plenty of experience under your belt. And I'm sure there have been some tough lessons you've learned along the way, one way or another, right? We all learn from our, I don't even want to say mistakes, missteps, or, you know, we learn things the hard way sometimes. What comes to mind when I ask you that question? Something, something that you did that, oh, well, I kind of learned that lesson the, the hard way. Yeah, I think twofold. Uh, a, not being confident enough in, in your product to, to raise rates accordingly, especially when I was starting out. Um, you know, I think we often can discount even our own by saying, oh, we're not quite as nice as the facility up the hill or um, things like that. So, and, and, and also realizing that um, you are providing a service. It, it, it sounded weird to me at first, like, cause I'd never had a storage unit. Like, well, why would they, why would someone pay this much amount? But, um, you know, now that I've experienced it, frankly, like we're, we're dealing with life changes, you know, maybe, maybe a family member died. You're not sure what to do with it yet. Um, so you need to just kind of buy some time, uh, or you'd be surprised, or I was surprised at frankly, how many small businesses we help too. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's cheaper than a warehouse space. There's more flexibility. Um, and so, so there's just a lot of different facets. So, um, being confident in your product, but then also, uh, I've done the flip side where I was overconfident in a market that was oversaturated to say, Hey, I can, you know, once we professionalize the website, professionalize the building a little bit more that, that we can do it. But, uh, frankly, that market, I should have known that it didn't matter because there was so much product. And this was a boat and RV uh, at a very rural lake that, that frankly, uh, the clientele didn't, didn't meet my expectations. And I should have known that from the start. So, yeah. 
how do you mean by that? It was just like a so like- I yeah so it, it's a rural fishing lake, um, and I think and because there was so much uh, frankly empty land, uh, a ton of other just run of the mill boat and RV storage around the lake um, that they have a ton of options to store elsewhere. So there really, there was an infinite amount of supply, frankly. (laughs) Um, And, and, and I, the locations that I had weren't quote unquote, like right next to the water. So there really wasn't. And, and that's one of the flip sides of boat and RV storage on, on, while it's great on some levels, um, frankly, on the other level, it's not that hard to hook up your boat and move to another facility if you're unhappy with the one you're at. Whereas if you just moved in four bedrooms worth of stuff, you're not going to repack everything up and move down the road because you're unhappy with that storage facility. Um, so, uh, so anyways, a lot of lessons learned, uh, within that. Nice. So one of the big questions that I think comes up when folks want to get into any new real estate investment strategy, it's like, okay, if I don't have all the money, where do I go find the money? You can't let that stop us, but also I think find a good, the, the quote unquote, find a good deal and the money will follow is BS. That doesn't, that doesn't yep. work out, right? Yeah, you got to go actually find it and make it happen. So how are you closing your deals, finding the money, making it happen? Yeah. Um, and so our very first storage deal, my wife and I, it was just my wife and I, so we 1031 to 12 unit apartment into our, our own, uh, deal to kind of, uh, frankly prove it to ourselves. And then that way we could prove it to others. Um, and so, uh, going forward, especially after we kind of garnered a track record, um, we've done joint ventures where it maybe be one or two other people. Um, and then we've done kind of a quote unquote syndication as well, where it's a little, where it's a few more investors. So I, frankly, it just kind of depends on the deal storage somewhat benefits in that, you know, you can find a large storage facility at, at smaller price points than quote unquote, larger apartments. Um, and so the check sizes are a little bit, the overall check sizes are a little bit lower, um, than, than maybe equivalent, uh, apartments, but yeah, so we'll run the gamut. It just kind of just depends on the deal, frankly. Nice. Okay. And since this is the passive wealth strategy show, right, we want to minimize the amount of time that we, uh, spend on any of our investments, right? We want to streamline as much as we can. So you've got all of these properties, how much time, once you acquire them, are you finding that you're spending on them? Are you hiring folks to handle all the things on site, cutting locks, replacing those things? What are you doing in terms of nuts and bolts actions? Sure. So I'm full-time in this, so I, it's not passive for me, but <laughs> it, it could be more passive if I, uh, if I wanted it to be. Um, but yes, generally just hiring good people. Um, so almost all of our sites now are large enough that they support on-site management and or and or a hybrid form. Um, I'd like to cluster my properties if I can help it, um, where a manager may spend a day at this one and then a day at one 15 minutes away or, you know, uh, half a day at each or however that day works out. Um, But, um, you know, I've run sites remotely where you get a trustworthy boots on the ground person that, you know, mows, sprays, cut locks for you, uh, checks on units for you, and they can come by one or two times a week and do that for you. So, uh, so yes, finding good people and then kind of laying out good operations for them, uh, can make, make a huge difference in, in your stress levels and, and, in your life. So, yeah. <laughs> good. What are your thoughts about the the future of self-storage? You know, you've, you've been in it since before the, you know, most recent wave of folks making the shift. What do you see 
into the future. You know, it's storage. funny. It's funny. Um, I think that, uh, especially in the last year and change, uh, that the actual percentage of the population that's using self-storage has actually crept up, um, you know, with work from home being more of a thing. Um, actually, with home prices increasing, uh, a lot of times that's going to drive a little bit more demand for storage because maybe you can't afford that extra bedroom of a house, but you can't afford a, you know, a 10 by 10 storage unit. Um, e-commerce is driving a lot of uh, need for a little bit more storage space. Maybe they don't need a whole uh, warehouse full of, of items. So, um, and, and it's, it's getting a little bit to be a little bit more of like a main street business. Uh, not that it wasn't a main street business before, but uh, now you have multi-story climate control buildings that are um, sleeker, nicer, um, a little bit more friendly than, than maybe when it was in an industrial park, uh, back in the day. So, uh, so I don't, uh, while I, I am fully in favor of, uh, guarded optimism development, um, instead of like build it in a random place where you want to build it just because, you know, the land was cheap or, or, or anything like that. But, uh, but generally speaking, I, I, I don't see much slowing storage down. Um, in terms of just overall, uh, you know, usage, if that makes sense. Well, it all starts with demand, right? We need a, a customer for our for our product, and yep. there are extraneous factors that could play in cost of money. You know, interest rates come to mind, um, but but otherwise, as long as demand is strong, then good news. Hopefully. Well, and 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 twofold on that too, that a lot of people have just been relocating or moving in the last few years, uh, last couple of years, and so. Uh, so that, that drives demand, uh, lock and lock and step with it too. So, all right, well, good news for everybody out there in self-storage or who wants to get into it right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own and the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called Ground Floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Zach, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? 
Um, marrying my wife would be that one, but that, that might be too short of an answer for you. Um, <laughs> honestly, probably that first self storage facility, because, um, you know, you can do all the research in the world, but until you actually just dive into something, you can't, you can't know what you don't know, or you can't guess what's going to happen. And so, uh, did a lot of <laughs> number crunching, a lot of, uh, of late nights wanting to make sure it works, but, um, you know, found a willing seller. And, and honestly, we knew going in, didn't think it would be near as good of a deal as it worked out, but, um, just the things that you, you learn step-by-step. Step. So, um, yeah, that would be it. Nice. Good. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Uh, actually in my residential days, um, it's, it's funny. I, I bought a house at a great price and then 100% over rehab. Oh, no. Um, and, <laughs> And when we were 100% done, it's it's sad to say this out loud, but um, we pretty much finished all of the interior. Um, I met, I walked by the neighbors, and they said, "Oh, love what you did to the house." Um, they said, "Did you did you did you add uh, HVAC?" And I literally uh, stopped in my tracks and thought, "What well, was already there?" Um, oh no! <laughs> and and of course, I walk over there, and it's a big forehead slap moment. Uh, that, uh, no, sure enough, there was not, um, they had, uh, they had heat, but no air. Um, and so, uh, that was, that was an expensive lesson, um, on top of already being over budget, but, um, anyways, so we survived. It wasn't, uh, we've since sold the property and probably, probably lost net maybe 5,000 bucks, but, um, just a good lesson in knowing that, um, you better know your costs, um, especially, um, in residential where there's really not quite as many, uh, it was a house. So there's really not quite as many, um, you know, revenue drivers outside of frankly, what can you charge for rent? What'd you buy it for? And what could you sell it for? So interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I learned something about budgeting and, and project management and making a plan and all that. Yep. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? It sounds so simple, but I've read the book Profit First um, ah, yes. and, and applied it to um, each property for storage. And um, it's made a, an enormous <laughs> uh, difference in how well I've budgeted for each property, uh, literally setting up three or four different checking accounts uh, for each property, uh, one for property taxes, one for reserves, one for future CapEx. Um and instead of just one account where it's all commingled and you're like, oh yeah, I, I think I have enough for property taxes. It, it, it sound it's almost literally like having different piggy banks, but, um, and I don't follow the, I don't follow it a hundred percent to a T, but just literally doing that and setting aside money into each account, uh, each month has made an enormous difference cash flow wise. Good, good. And we've talked about profit first on the show in the past and definitely, it uh, seems a, a very powerful tool for making sure you're profitable and managing cash flows and all the allocations, especially, you know, big companies, big businesses, they have, you know, finance professionals only managing their cash flow, whereas yep. real estate investors, we're kind of doing it ourselves. Yep. Yep. It, uh, yeah, I highly recommend that book. Um, even if you iterate it to your own, uh, you know, whether it be small business or small real estate property, um, it, 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 it was a huge help for me. Nice. Well, Zach, thank you for joining us today. I think uh, self-storage is great. And I'd, one, I'd love to see more people invest in self-storage, but also kind of not because I invest in self-storage. So I don't want more competition. I but hear you. I hear you. Thanks for joining us. Anyway, 
if folks want to reach out, they want to get in touch with you, if they want to talk about future deals, if they're interested in investing with you or, or whatever, how can they reach out to you? Sure. Uh, ZachQuick.com is probably the best way. Z-A-C-H-Q-U-I-C-K. And then I'm also on LinkedIn or BiggerPockets. But uh, yeah, ZachQuick.com would probably be the best way. Good. I see you posting on BiggerPockets all the time. So I'm going to have to shoot you a connect if uh, yeah, we're not already connected. <laughs> Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me the warm and fuzzies because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.